first thing I would say is your sense of violation is valid. Mm. And in fact, like a person does not have to intend to violate you or violate your boundaries in order to violate your boundaries. Wow. Hello, health champions. Welcome back to another episode of The Taboo Doctor, previously known as A Slice of Health. This is the health podcast where no subject is off the table and we answer all the taboo health questions that you've always been afraid to ask. Join me and my friends from all over the world as we demystify healthcare and wellness. It is our aim to turn you into a health champion wherever you go as you slice health fact away from health fiction. Make sure you tell a friend or two to join the revolution. Follow us on social media and also watch the recordings of all our episodes on our YouTube channel, Taboo Doctor. Don't forget that this episode in no way replaces advice from your own healthcare worker or physician. Please be reminded that all the views shared on the podcast reflects the personal and professional views of our guests. I hope you enjoyed the episode. See you on the other side. Hello, health champions. Welcome back to another episode. On today's episode, we are joined by Dr. Nadine Thornhill, who is a health educator. She's also a doctor of education and she focuses on demystifying things around sexual education, especially for children and adolescents and helping their families as well navigate those kind of complex conversations um, that are so important for us to have. She's been featured in a lot of international publications, including the Oprah magazine. Thank you so much, Dr. Nadine, for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So today we're talking about consent, but before we jump into it, we'd like you to tell us a lot about yourself. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like you covered all of the main points. So yes, I am a, I'm a sexuality educator and I have a private practice based in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, where I live. I'm also a parent. I have a 13 year old. And so, you know, we're navigating puberty and adolescence and all of the changes. And yeah, I've, you know, I started this work not long before my son was born. It was a couple of years before he was born. And what I found was that once I became a parent and I was, you know, really grappling with just all of the challenges of raising an entirely, you know, separate human being from myself, uh, you know, and, and really sort of feeling like, I don't really know what I'm doing. I've never done this before. The one area where I didn't have as much anxiety was around uh, sexuality and, you know, what I could say or not say to him about his body, about relationships, Um, you know, and even in the times when I, when I would struggle or I wouldn't have all the answers in the back of my head, because I had had this, you know, I had this training and I had this career, I knew that I was like, it's okay. You know, even if I don't have all the answers in the moment, it's okay. You know, even if I have to go back and, uh, you know, have a conversation a second or third or 20th time to be quite frank, that's okay. Um, and so how I kind of really came to this work and focusing on child and adolescent sexuality and really trying to help, you know, parents and teachers and other people who have relationships with children was wanting people to have access to the same information that I had and not having to, you know, specifically be working in sexual health, not specifically having to be in this situation where you're spending, you know, 40, 50 hours a week immersed in, 
uh, sexuality as a career because that's just not what most people do. And so I was, you know, I basically wanted to take the information that I had and try to figure out ways of sharing that with sort of everyday families and everyday teachers so that they weren't scared and so that, you know, they could have some of that peace of mind as well. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, to help them understand that, you know, sexuality is part of our humanity and it's, it's really in and of itself, it's, it's neutral. You know, Mm -hmm. I think we often have this, um, we have this sense that it's, it's something that is very fraught and it's, it's dangerous and it's Mm -hmm. incredibly sensitive and volatile. And so you have to deal with it in, exactly the right way, particularly when it comes to our children and our teenagers or everything is going to fall apart. Mm -hmm. And I really wanted to sort of help people understand that, you know, it's information and it's experiences that we have and feelings that are a part of us and we can help our kids make sense of it and we can give them a context for all of these things. And also you don't have to be perfect at it. You know, it's okay if even some days you're terrible at it. Um, You know, as long as you're coming from a place of love and care and concern, you will, you can figure a way through it and you're not going to harm them by giving them information. Yeah, that is great. And, you know, you touched on something that we talked about yesterday on one of the recordings that I did with a sex coach. And we were talking about um, demystifying sexual pleasure on on that episode and something she said. And I also could correlate with she was talking about how her mom gave her her own sex education and it was sort of stumbled upon and as quick as possible. And it, it seemed quite tense, you know, that, that conversation. And she ended up learning by reading her mom's books when her mom wasn't watching. And she got mm-hmm. a lot more information that way. And, you know, she was a lot more empowered because she had that information. How would, when would you say that parents should start talking to their children about it? Because some parents feel, oh, it's too early at a certain stage, um, but they're not quite sure when exactly to, to broach that subject. Right. So I say that, you know, it's, it's never too late to start. So for parents who may be listening and thinking like, oh no, I, this is just a part of parenting that I haven't really invested a lot of time and that's okay. You know, you can start now, but you can start right away. And I often say to people that think of your child's sex education, the way you would think of building a house, Mm -hmm. you don't start with the bricks. So oftentimes when people hear sex ed, they just think, oh, the part of it, that's literally about having sex with other people. And well, I'm not going to talk to my young kid about that, which I understand. But it's like, that's the bricks. Yeah. That's later. We start with the foundation. Mm-hmm. And the foundation are things like just giving kids a vocabulary to talk about their bodies. And so, you know, even when we have infants, if we're bathing them or we're changing them, we'll often sort of name the body parts that we're touching or washing. So I'll say, you know, include their genitals in there. And it just, it just needs to be sort of the exterior genitals that they can see and feel. Um, So you can say words like vulva and penis and testicles along with arm and nose and and mouth. That's something you can do from the time that they're babies. And the great thing about starting then is if you're feeling uncomfortable or you're nervous saying those words, your baby won't have any idea. (laughs) You know, um, it will, you, you've got like probably a good two years of practicing that with them before they have any clue that you might be uncomfortable. And by then you'll probably be super comfortable with that. Um, 
you can start, you know, when your children are, you know, possibly toddlers or preschoolers, you know, a lot of children at that age are around pregnancies because they either have a parent who's pregnant with, you know, a sibling or, you know, their parents' friends may be pregnant. And so I'm like, that's where you can have like a really preliminary conversation about where babies come from. And that is a conversation about sex, but, you know, we can keep it really basic, really concrete, really simple. Um, you know, on my YouTube channel, I have a video where I kind of give a script mm-hmm. about how you can tackle that conversation with little kids. Uh, another thing you can start to do is really start helping them name their feelings. So when you notice that they're very excited or they're very angry, you know, start using those words and naming it for them because being able to talk about our feelings is a really core component of navigating relationships, including romantic and sexual relationships down the line. But again, that's the foundation Mm -hmm. and you build on that as they get older. Yeah, that is amazing. And I really like what you said about articulating how you're feeling. Mm-hmm. A lot of times, you know, even with depression or anxiety, sometimes we struggle because we're not able to articulate what is going on on the inside. And once you have those tools, it makes it easier to navigate those kind of situations. Absolutely. So talking about romantic relationships, which, which we, you know, we've, we've come into now, what is consent? Okay, so there's there's gen- I say there's general consent and then there's consent within the context of romance and sex. Yeah. So generally speaking, consent is when we we give our permission to interact with another person, however that interaction takes place. And sometimes it can be a very straightforward yes, I agree to this. No, I don't agree to that. And sometimes it's more of a negotiation and sometimes it's more nuanced. And, you know, consent is very rarely a blanket consent because the way that we feel about things, you know, the way we feel about other people, the way we feel about situations, the way we feel about ourselves, it changes and it shifts. And that shift can happen within a, within seconds. It can sometimes happen over, you know, the course of months or sometimes years. So it's also sort of, you know, just this ongoing giving or denial, I guess, of permission to interact with someone. And then we have consent within the context of a romantic or sexual relationship. And that is same idea, but it's, you know, giving permission or putting up boundaries around how we want to engage with other people in terms of, you know, sexual activity or romantic activity. Okay. Okay. And so there's, I think consent is a very nuanced subject. So sometimes people can make it seem as though it's very black and white. And in, in certain situations it is. So, you know, if someone has clearly said no, then that, that is a no. Um, but then in certain situations, it can be a bit more complicated in terms of giving consent and also then understanding and interpreting consent if you're on the, on the, other, on the other end of it as well. So what would you say about, about those kind of situations and how should we navigate those situations when we find ourselves in, in that kind of state? So I talk about a concept called that I call authentic consent. And I actually recently just put out a video on this on my channel. And so with authentic consent, when we are engaging with a romantic or sexual partner, 
the basis of the consent is always that everyone involved cares about having having an experience that everyone authentically wants to be having. And I will admit that sometimes that's harder to quantify in concrete terms because you can't say, oh, well, it has to be somebody saying yes, or it has to be saying somebody saying yes in this tone of voice. Um, but that's the intention you come to the experience with. It's not, okay, I, I want to have sex with this person. And yes, I want there to be consent. And I just want them to say yes so that I technically heard a yes. Um, it's not, okay, I'm in this situation with someone and you know maybe we're kissing and we're making out and I'm getting body language from them that they're, like there's tension in their body or they're stopping and hesitating, and but they're not saying no, so I'm just going to burn through and keep doing something. And if they're really not into it, they'll like push me away, mm. you know? And so that authentic consent is like, no, I, I want you to be having a good time. Like I want to have a good time, but I want you to have a good time. I want you to feel okay. I want to make sure that if we're doing this together, you want to be doing it. Um, and so I think that's the spirit that you come to authentic consent with. And then what I think we have to acknowledge is that sometimes it's sometimes it's going to be really easy. Um, again, it depends on, sorry, there's noise outside. It depends on who you're with. Um, it may depend on how well you know them. It may, may depend on how well you can sort of read your partner. And sometimes it may be more complicated. You know, sometimes it may be a situation where you're like, I'm getting something from you and I don't know what it is. And so now I have to stop and I have to ask and I have to check in and say like, are you okay? Um, it may mean that, okay, in our situation, we're going to have to work out some sort of clear signal that may not be you saying no and pushing me away um, if you want to stop or if you want to halt. It may sometimes mean like, we're going to have to put a pause on this because I, I this is just like unclear. Um, and so, yeah, I'm like, yeah, sometimes it's going to be awkward. Sometimes it's going to mean sort of coming out of the moment, putting the pause on, having some conversations, clarifying some things, and then kind of going back into that moment. Um, you know, sometimes it's going to mean having conversations like ahead of time. You know, there are some, like there are a lot of folks who have gone through sexual trauma and they have triggers. And so sometimes it's worth sitting down like, you know, days or weeks before you ever get to the point of actually having a sexual partnership and saying like, hey, I do have these triggers and these are some of what they are. And so if in the moment I sort of freeze up or stop talking or go numb, I need you to know that that's a signal that something isn't okay because I'm not going to be able to articulate that to you in the moment, things like that. So it, it becomes a lot more specific yeah. to the people involved yeah. and it becomes a lot more specific given the situation. And so as an educator, like it does become harder for me to say, well, this is what consent looks like all the time mm -hmm. for everybody in every situation because it doesn't work like that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I really love that. And if, you know, someone was in a situation, so I think one of our conversations on one of the recent um, recordings as well, we were talking about, you know, um, a lady was saying, you know, she'd be in a situation where, you know, they were kissing and touching, but she wasn't so sure if she wanted to go the whole way, mm -hmm. um, but she didn't want to stop 
because she was right. also because she was also enjoying the moment. So how do you then educate that person who is in that position to say to be able to then articulate those feelings to the other partner um, without you know in that position where they don't want to offend the other partner or they don't want to push the, mm. the partner away but they don't want to stop what's going on but they're just not sure if they want to go they want to go the full way they want to go the full way mm. um and there's so much to unpack in there because there is that real fear of like i don't want to hurt this other person's feelings mm. and so i think a big part of consent education in general and this is also something that i think can start in childhood is teaching people number one how to deal with difficult emotions because if we are sexually active people and we are sexually active you know on a sort of more or less ongoing basis um in our lives i'm like rejection is going to happen sometimes sometimes you're going to want it and somebody else isn't going to or you're going to want to do something and someone else isn't going to and you may not always feel great about that and i think it's i think we need to make space to say like it's okay if you don't feel great about not getting the sex that you want. Like you don't have to be like, oh, it's great. I'm fine. Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, it's okay to feel frustrated. It's okay to feel disappointed. Um, it might even be okay to feel angry, but then what we need to do is teach people, how do you deal with that? Because that's your stuff. Yeah. Those are your feelings. And someone else is not obligated to do something with their bodies they don't want to do to so that you feel okay. Yeah. You know, um, because then they're not okay. And you know, their bodies are not the bomb for you're not feeling okay. Right. So yeah, so I think there's that part of it where I'm like, I really encourage people to, and that's part of the naming of the feelings. That's the first step in, okay, know how you feel. And then another step is let's come up with strategies and ways that you can cope with that and process it instead of thinking, oh, I just, I can't, I can't deal with it. If I feel like rejected and embarrassed when somebody says no to my sexual advances. And I think the other part of that teaching, which again can begin when folks are young, is that you are not obligated to do something that makes you uncomfortable in order to avoid somebody else feeling uncomfortable mm. um, because that's damaging and it's damaging to yourself. Mm. And, and, you know, to say that with a lot of compassion that, you know, a lot of us are sort of trained socially to be polite and to be considerate and to take other people's feelings into consideration. And so it's understandable, particularly if we haven't done that work and we haven't explored, um, you know, saying no or, or, you know, or sitting in the discomfort sometimes of knowing you've disappointed another person that you actually really like um and how to have those conversations and how to navigate that like it's understandable and it's okay and if in this moment of extreme vulnerability you you don't suddenly like say oh i know how to do this now i'm good let's stop yeah. okay i'm okay with all of the feelings that are coming up but you are allowed to do that mm. and i think those are conversations we need to have too and we can have them with kids and we can talk to kids and say things like how does it feel if your friend wants to do something and you don't? Like, how would you feel if you said to them, no, I don't want to do that? How would you feel if they were disappointed? Like, what could we do? Um, but also making it clear, like, you don't have to do something with someone just because you like them and just because they might be bummed that you want something else for yourself. Yeah, yeah. 
definitely. And going back into that in terms of talking about concerns, because last year when we had the Me Too movement all, all around the world, a lot of a lot of women were coming out saying me too. A lot of men were also coming out saying me too. You know, yeah. right across the gender spectrum, everyone yeah. was experienced had had these kind of experiences, you know, in their lives. Um, and something that I noticed though as well was sometimes some people were then reflecting on certain in- instances where they were like, actually, I don't remember actually giving consent. I just kind of went along with it. Um, yeah. Had I been violated in that situation, had I been assaulted in that situation, but then not being able to actually say what exactly had happened, what do you say about that? Because sometimes people are in that situation where they probably go ahead with it and then come out on the other end feeling, what just happened to me? What what, what just happened? Yeah, yeah. Um, So the first thing I would say is your sense of violation is valid. Mm. And in fact, like a person does not have to intend to violate you or violate your boundaries in order to violate your boundaries. Wow. The first thing I will say is if that's your instinctive sense, then that's real. Mm. Um, The other thing I will say is that we live in a culture and I think, you know, Canadian culture and British culture are very similar in a lot of ways. you know, colonialism is a thing. So, um, you know, I think there's there's a lot of British culture entrenched in Canadian culture um, and just sort of like Western English speaking culture mm. in general. There's a lot of commonalities. And something that has been true in our culture for generations, and I think the Me Too movement was a moment of reckoning mm. with something that has been historically entrenched is this idea that people in our culture who have more social power are have historically been given license to push the boundaries of other people mm. without any sort of um, consequence or retribution. Mm. And so I think the sort of modern manifestation of that over the past couple of generations has been, oh yeah, yeah, like we all understand that, you know, it's rape if you like, you know, violently and aggressively, you know, knock someone down, certainly if you threaten them with a weapon, um, certainly if you're pinning a person down and they're kicking and screaming and saying, no, that that's not okay. Mm. But if you come up against a person and like, you're the person with, you know, that society deems to have more power in the situation. And that person is intimidated by you. And that person is just, you know, maybe in a position where they're reluctant to say no to you so they don't say it, it's okay to push them, mm. you know? Like even, like, and, and the thing that I say is, like, yes, absolutely, there are folks who have, like who may be neuroatypical or who legitimately don't, aren't able to read other people's cues and body language and vocal cues, but there are a lot of people who are, who just choose to ignore it. So I'm like, you know, you're getting a vibe from someone that they're not okay with it, but you also know, and you've been taught by our society that it doesn't really matter, Mm. you know? So if you're just getting that really sort of soft, passive discomfort from them, it's fine. Just keep pushing them, Mm. do what you want, because you know, they're not going to say anything. And you know that you can kind of be like, oh, well, they didn't like kick me in the balls and say, stop this I hate you so I I thought it was fine but I'm like no you didn't no you didn't and now what happens to the other person is a lot of times the person who's whose boundary has been violated feels gaslit because they're like 
oh, like I knew I wasn't okay with that. And I'm pretty sure they knew I wasn't okay with that, but I have no concrete evidence that they didn't know that. Um, and then what has happened until very recently is that oftentimes people are like, oh, well, then nothing happened. Mm. Nothing happened to you. And so, yeah, my response is no, something happened. Mm. You know what you know. And just because there's no concrete, irrefutable evidence to anyone outside that situation, like, you know what you experience and they know it too. Yeah, yeah, definitely. yeah. And, you know, that that is so true. And, and you talked about people not being able to pick up on cues. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes in conversation, we definitely have those people who choose to ignore nonverbal cues. Yeah. And sometimes there are some aloof people who have not been socialized to actually understand these cues. Yeah. So if you are saying to someone, you know, the kind of cues that they should also be sensitive to, to make sure that they are not violating someone if they are claiming that they actually don't understand. What kind of cues would you educate people on to look out for in that kind of interaction? So uh, a few different cues I would tell people to look out for. Um, One one big cue is if you ask someone to do something, you ask somebody for something, And they refuse you, even if it's in a roundabout way, you know, they come up with an excuse Um, and it may be a very pleasant excuse offered with a smile or, um, you know, they just, they have some reason and it may not be like, I don't like you and don't want you to touch me, but it's, you know, there's some reason I'd say, basically, if you feel like you have to ask again, Mm -hmm. check yourself. Mm because they've refused you, even if you didn't hear the word no, even if you heard like, oh, actually, I've got a lot of work to do right now, or, oh, you know, I would love to some other time, but I have an appointment to get to, let it go. Um, you, you've made your offer and you've been refused. Uh, something else I would say is if you find someone is not making a lot of eye contact with you, um, if you find that someone is kind of moving away from you um, or even if they're not moving towards you uh you know if if you're making a specific sexual or romantic overture and they're just kind of standing there or, or sitting there and not moving towards you then that might be a point to check in and say like hey is like is this is this okay with you um you know i would love to kiss you if you're into that Um, something else you can do is you can sort of, and and it feels vulnerable, but you can open yourself up and then explicitly let them make the other move. Mm. Uh, so this is an example off the top of my head, but let's say, um, like, like, let's say you have a colleague, because I mean, I acknowledge that sometimes people meet in the workplace at a certain age and like, where else are you going to meet people? Um, so I'm not, I'm not blanketly anti-workplace romances but yeah so there's someone you're working with I think it's you know what you can maybe say is you know what I really like you I would love to take you out but I don't want to push you so you know can I give you my email or you know can I leave you my number and if you're interested like please do text me please do send me a message like please do swing by my desk and we'll work something out um but no pressure i think that's a great thing you can also do too is that if you don't want the person to feel pressured if you don't want them to feel like there's any obligation you can explicitly say that 
There's no pressure here. There's no rush, no obligation. Just wanted you to know I'm into you. Yeah. And I like that actually, because yeah, you are right that, you know, in, in the way our generation is currently, the workplace is a still a good place to meet partners yeah. and friends. And, you know, and we spend so much time in the workplace, maybe not this year with COVID, but, <laughs> but you know, but generally that, that is what it's been. And I think people have then started finding it a bit more difficult to navigate those situations where you see someone and you're like, I like this person, but I don't want them to feel as though I am being inappropriate. And I, you know, I like how you, how you suggested that they can, they can make that move as well. And what do you say to the people? Cause I think when Me Too happened and we were having such wide conversations about consent, which were overdue. Um, A lot of people were saying that, oh yeah, but it it never used to be that way back in the day. And um, things, those those kind of comments, what do you say to those people? Because I often feel that it always was that way back in the day. They just ignored the ignored the rules and ignored the signs and ignored the fact that people were uncomfortable. What do you say to people like that? Um, I would say exactly that. It was like people didn't suddenly become uncomfortable last year. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is no impetus for people to make up that they're uncomfortable when they're not. Like, why would anyone be like, actually, I really, really, I really, really like being catcalled and you know having people making comments at my about my body at work it makes me feel like sexy and confident and great so i'm just going to pretend now for no reason that i hate it mm-hmm. like you need to believe people when they say things and again i'm like yeah no this absolutely was happening but we were in an environment where it was accepted where the rare, like when people did find the courage to speak out, they were often brutally and immediately shut down. You know, I remember being a kid and living through the um, Anita Hill Clarence Thomas trials in the States. You know, I think I was about 11 or 12 and coming of age. And I mean, that was a very public thing. But I still remember listening to those hearings and internalizing that as a girl and, and thinking like, this is so obvious and egregious. And I mean, look who this woman is, you know, she has every credential, you know, she's so poised and well-spoken and, you know, basically has all the means at her disposal that, you know, especially we as black women are told to embody in order to protect ourselves and she's still not being protected. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, I'm like, there's a reason that you didn't hear about it. It's because it got swept under the rug. Mm. And it's because, yeah, you know, especially women, especially women of color, um, especially trans folks, like anybody who had a marginalized identity, mm. you know, who was already in a lot of social peril was shut down. Mm. Um, and so I'm like, yeah, there was an environment where for a lot of people, it probably was easier to just pretend it didn't happen mm. or accept it and move on. Or at least in the short term, it probably seemed a lot easier and a lot less scary to just be like, it's no big deal. It's like, it doesn't matter. And then, yeah, we found this moment where it was like somebody opened the floodgates and all of that sort of like repressed pain and rage and, you know, 
Um, and everyone's story started spilling out because they were like, oh, oh, okay, yeah, it was real. Like mm-hmm. it happened to her, it happened to me. Yeah. yeah. And it matters. It matters. Yeah, it does. It matters. And what do you say to people who have gone through those experiences who perhaps are no longer able to, you know, bring the perpetrator to to justice or to the legal system? How would you encourage them to speak about it and talk about it? Because sometimes that is actually the difficult part. That's the difficult. sharing the story. So I think it's really important for survivors of any kind of sexual violation. And I don't care how intense uh, it may seem to somewhat like to people outside the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's really important to let them take the lead on their own healing and how they move forward from mm-hmm. it. And so usually what I will say to people is, Uh, Well, I guess I only know if they've told me. Mm -hmm. And so uh, like the first thing I'll say is, you know, thank you for telling me and thank you for trusting me. I'm sorry that somebody did this to you. Mm -hmm. And more recently, I've tried to make a conscious effort to frame it in that way as opposed to saying, I'm sorry this happened to you because I'm like, rain when you don't have an umbrella is a thing that happened to you. Somebody violating you is a, it's a choice that that person made to harm you. So like, it didn't just happen. Somebody did this to you. Um, So I'll say like, yeah, I'm sorry. Somebody did this to you. What they did to you was wrong. Um, And then usually I'll just try to ask, you know, how can, like, what can I do to support you and what can I do to help you? And some people, you know, they really want to talk about it and they want resources and they want to know where to go. And, you know, if I have that information, I'm happy to give it to them or help them find it. But sometimes they just want someone to listen to them and they just mm. want to feel heard. And I'm like, you know what? That's fine. Like, you don't have to do anything that you don't want to do about this. And so for me as a consent educator and a sexuality educator who does sometimes support survivors, um, I try really hard never to say to somebody like, this is the next step you need to take. It's like you decide the next step you need to take because somebody took your decisions away from you. So from here on out, I just want to do what I can do to support your decision-making. And if you want to go, um, like if you want to go pursue justice, whatever that looks like to you, like, absolutely. If you're just like, no, I just want to move on with my life. Don't want to talk about this anymore. That's okay too. And also uh, the last thing is I'll try to remind them that Whatever you decide now and whatever you decide in the future around this, you have a right to decide. So, you know, like you may not want to like deal with this now and that's okay, but that doesn't mean you can't come back in, you know, five months or five years and say like, okay, now I'm ready to do something about this, something different. Yeah. And, you know, talking about sexual assault, um, I just remembered that, you know, marital rape is something that is of huge conflict around the world in terms of it being classified as an injustice in some parts of the world and being classified as non-existent in some parts of the world because in a marriage situation it's classified that your body belongs to your partner and your your partner's body belongs to you and so whatever you wanted to do in that situation but what would you because you know we've heard stories of really horrible, horrible situations in, yeah. in, in those kind of circumstances. What do you say about consent in, in those kind of situations or in long-term relationships? I don't think that, yeah, consent and your, your right to your own body and your bodily autonomy does not change because 
you've made a legal commitment to somebody else or because you're in a long-term relationship. Now, I fully acknowledge that consent in a long-term relationship may function differently than the way it would say, like with a person you've slept with for the first time and you don't know. Yeah. Um, because in a long-term relationship, I think if you, if you have that trust in each other and you have built up that relationship where you're like, yeah, like, we know each other's body cues pretty well. And we both know, and I, we can both sort of take for granted that we're both here for each other. And we both care for each other. Um, you know, I'm not going to say to someone like, you need to ask for like, ex- be like, can I touch you like this? Can I do this every single time you interact? Unless that's something that one or both of you needs to do. Like you can absolutely do that in a long-term yeah. relationship. But if you say to me, look, Nadine, like we've been together for a decade and like we we have a good sense of each other and like yeah I think you can trust that at the same time I'm not going to say well look you got married and so you consented to being together on your wedding day and consented to having this marriage that involves that includes asexual relationships so that's it like you consented once you're done I'm never going to say like, you're not allowed to ever say no to having sex. You're not allowed to say to your partner, like the way you're touching me is not okay. And please stop it. Um, And if your partner thinks that they can just use your body, then um, no, that's not cool. And that's not okay. And no, they're not like you are still your own separate independent person. You don't belong to them. You're not their pet. Um, You're their partner. And you're a whole complete entire person on your own. You're just in partnership with another whole complete person. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 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 definitely, definitely. And so how do we then have these conversations with children about consent? So you'd mentioned earlier about, you know, saying to children that if someone took something that belonged to you, how would you feel, Um, you know? those kind of conversations are there any other ways for us to have these conversations in um in clearer ways because you know back in the day there were a lot of things about especially between male and and female children that that were labeled male and female and um you know they'd say to the girl that oh if he you know if he tugs on your pigtails then it means he really likes you if he pushes you in the the sandbox he likes you and obviously we're trying to then change those kind of you know ways of teaching and educating children but some of those patterns are still ingrained in the way people interpret relationships and causing them to accept violence or maltreatment as well so how do we educate children you know regardless of their gender about what consent should look like and what interests in having a partner should look like as well so um First of all, with the whole, yeah, he's pushing you down. He likes you. Let's, I encourage people to stop saying that mm-hmm. altogether. Um, you know, focus more on how the person who was pushed felt. If they're coming to you crying, just be like, yeah, you're upset and you have a reason to be because somebody just pushed you. Yeah. But going back to the foundation, I think one place we can start with very young children is teaching them that certain types of touch and certain types of interactions, particularly the ones that are meant to feel good, should feel good. And if that they, and if they don't, that they are allowed to opt out. And so one really common one is with 
um, interactions with relatives or family friends with little kids, you know. Uh, so I'm someone, I, I like love babies and little kids. I think they're like adorable and delicious. So I'm like, I always want to like hug them and kiss them and snuggle them. And some kids are, are great with that. And some kids are just like, whoa, no. Mm. I don't want to touch you. I don't want to kiss you. You know, like I'm an auntie, um, you know, and I have nieces aged like eight to 20 now, and you know, um, and like throughout their childhood, it's been different things when I see them. Like some of them are like jumping into my arms and some of them are kind of, you know, when they first see me, you know, you yeah. can see that hesitation. And so I think honoring that in your kids, like when you see that hesitation, they're like, no, I don't want to kiss my grandma. No, I don't want to go hug my uncle. Mm -hmm. Just backing them up and being like, okay, if you don't want to, you don't have to. Yeah. Um, and also teaching them the same, like teaching them the the recip the the opposite of that, which is, you know, yeah, like if you want to go in and like hug your friend or kiss your friend, that's okay. But if they're letting you know either with their body or with their words that they don't want that, then you need to stop because a hug or a kiss or a snuggle is supposed to show love and affection. Um, and the same thing with play, you know, little kids can get really excited and engrossed in their play. And if they have friends around, it's sort of like, okay, everybody do what I want to do because I have an idea and it's going to be amazing. And that's, you know, you love that childhood exuberance. And if you notice that and you sort of notice like, maybe your kid unintentionally is like railroading another kid who's quieter or more shy or like doesn't seem to be in the game, just kind of interrupting them and gently saying like, hey, I know you're really excited about this, but it looks like maybe your friend is not so excited about that. So like, why don't we go check in and see if they wanna do this. And if they don't, that's okay. And maybe you can play something else or maybe you can play a part for a little bit um, and giving them those options, but really teaching them just like, pay attention to how other people are responding. And also you have a right to be like, hey, I'm not into this game yeah, yes. so much. And that's okay. And you're not being a bad friend and you're not being mean, but when we play, we're supposed to be having fun. And if you're not having fun, then this is not the right game for you right now. And really making that connection between consent and having a good pleasurable experience. That consent is a part of that. Yeah, that is amazing. And just the final question to parents who have maybe not started talking about, you know, consent, sexuality to their children early enough, and maybe now they feel it's too late. How would you tell them to approach you? Because you said it's never too late, which I absolutely love. It's how never you, too How do you then yeah. tell them to start approaching, approaching it if they feel it's too late? So if one thing you can do if you feel it's too late or if you've never had these conversations, and this applies to any aspect of sexuality, is you can act, just, just be real about that with your kid yeah. and say like, listen, you know what? I know we've never really talked about this before. I, I didn't know how, or it just never occurred to me, but I, I do think it's important. So I'd love to start talking about it now. And like with something like consent, you can even start with something simple like, you know, I'm sorry if this is a really basic question, but do you like, what does consent mean to you? What does that mm -hmm. word mean to you? And just get a baseline of like where they're at with it. Mm -hmm. And that might be the first conversation for that day. Like yeah. you just kind of taking their temperature, yeah. but then you've opened that door and you can come back another day. Yeah. Um, and I always tell people like, 
you know, go in increments. Don't ever feel like you have to sit down and like two hour lecture them about something. Even if, you know, you've waited till they're like 13, 14, 15, yeah. just it gradually, just kind of like weave it in there. I love that. I love that. And just, you know, tiny little chunks, chunking, you know, and checking and giving, you know, each one an ability to articulate where they're at, where they're feeling as well. I absolutely love that. Thank you so much, Dr. Nadine, for joining us on today's episode. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This is wonderful. Thank you. And where can our viewers find you online? Uh, so you can find me on Instagram at Nadine Thornhill. That's also my Twitter handle. I am on YouTube. Nadine Thornhill is my channel name. And then, uh, yeah, folks can also connect with me via email, which is info at nadinethornhill.com and my website, nadinethornhill.com. That's fantastic. Thank you so much, Dr. Nadine. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on today's episode. I hope you have enjoyed it as much as we have. Make sure you leave us a rating or two on iTunes and share the episode with a friend or two who have not heard about us before. And please send us all your questions, suggestions and thoughts at hello at taboodoctor.com. We definitely want to hear from you. Subscribe to our newsletter as well and follow us on social media. Until next time, stay safe and keep slicing health fact away from health fiction.